Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 138. Thank you for joining us. Today, Bonnie and I are joined by author, storyteller, and veteran Colby homeschooling mother, Catherine Swigart. In addition to sharing her memories of homeschooling, Catherine talks about the importance of reading to our children, the inspiration for her writing, and life after homeschooling. We really enjoyed our time with Catherine, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy her thoughts and wisdom. We hope that you'll enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. Stephen, of all the Eucharistic miracle stories you're familiar with, do you have a favorite or one that really intrigues you? Well, the the recent one down in um, South America is very intriguing from just my science background with all of the you know research they've done to show that this they had a, the Eucharist became flesh, but then they did all the studies on it and how it was from the heart, and it had to have been taken basically while the person was alive, and um, there's all the trauma and you know just they have so much scientific evidence that it's it's like impossible to to say this isn't miraculous and this is what's going on so i think that's that's what comes to mind first at least just that just just again because it's so compelling right now sure that's so fascinating how they're able to determine all that from all their tests and then the results that they discover all of that is just so moving and compelling to me. I, I'm not sure that I have a list topper, but I, I, like I said, I find this topic so absorbing. Uh, when I was at the Midwest Catholic Family Conference this past August, I got to see the traveling exhibition of Eucharistic Miracles curated by Blessed Carlo Acutis. Pretty neat to see, especially as his cause for canonization is moving forward and timely for today's conversation. Our guest today has authored books that many of our listeners may have in their home libraries or wish lists. We are delighted to claim her as a Colby mom and visit with her a bit today. Mrs. Catherine Sweetgart, welcome to the Colby cast. Well, thank you for inviting me. You're most welcome. I've been looking forward to visiting with you. This is a real treat. I have taken notice of your books and and then when the opportunity presented itself to get to talk to you, I was like, oh, yet again, such a privilege and pleasure to be to have these opportunities here on the Colby cast to, to visit with folks like you. So I led off with highlighting the book that you wrote called Miraculous Catholic Miracles for Kids, because I, I greatly enjoyed that and have since gone hunting for more info about the Holy House of Loretto. You have several published titles to your name, including Lucia, which won first place in the 2022 Catholic Media Awards Best Books for Young Readers. Congratulations. Thank you. It was I was very excited. Sure. Yeah. Let's go back a bit to that bit about you being a Colby mom, though. Would you tell us your Colby story and a bit more about yourself and your writing? Well, well, sure. First of all, um, I've been married uh, 41 years to my husband. We live in a small farm in Maine, and uh, we moved up here from Cape Cod in uh, 1993. And we felt it would be a good place. We have about five acres uh, for the kids to live in a rural environment and homeschool. And it was a good combination. Um, they learned to do chores. Uh, we had dairy goats they had to milk, you know, twice a day, uh, no matter what the weather and process it. And we had a beef calf and 
chickens and uh, pictures of our sons trying to eat the chicken that he had bonded with, but couldn't quite do that. Um, And they loved it. They love Maine. They love the winters. Um, Up until uh, eighth grade, I um, kind of chose my own curriculum because I I really felt that it was as long as we kept got the basics of um, getting the reading, the phonics going uh, and their math. And then we did a lot with music. They did um, for many, many, many years. uh, Suzuki violin. Our daughter was like three when she started. And uh, also our one of our sons uh, did the piano. So there was kind of this balance of the academics, which we would do early right away. And then the and the chores and the music. And that was kind of you can't do everything. You know, you can't be doing everything. So that's kind of what we chose. But then when ninth grade rolled along and our son, um, well, our two sons were still in middle school, but our daughter, Catherine, who I will say she was a pretty gifted student um, back on Cape Cod. It's kind of a funny story when she first we had to uh, kind of prove to the principal why we were not going to send her to public school. And I didn't really want her to be kind of interviewed by the principal. So I did a recording of her and we had read over and over the Velveteen Rabbit and we had, she had listened to the audio of Merle Streep reading it. So she could say it with a British accent. (laughs) So the principal heard and said, okay, that's enough. You know, (laughs) know, many, many trips to the library and we just love books. We have books all around. We'll hopefully talk a little bit about that later. But then uh, ninth grade rolled around and I said to to Catherine, do you want me to keep picking out a curriculum or do you want us to buy a curriculum? And she looked at me like, mom, we need to buy a curriculum. (laughs) No offense. So so we did. And uh, so I was doing the math. We we used the Colby High School curriculum for 11 years. Okay. Um, Yeah, it's a a bit of a space between... um, Catherine, who's going to be 40 next year, and our youngest, Peter, who's, he just turned 33. So there was a little bit of a gap. So we were doing it for a long time. I always felt it was very solid. I always felt very secured. I said, we're doing Colby, and we know that it's going to work. It's giving them a solid foundation. So it gave me a lot of comfort and less anxiety, I would say, by using it, because you know what you're doing. (laughs) Right, how did you hear about Colby? How did you, were you kind of aware of it from the years you were choosing your own curriculum? Oh, that's a good question. I was trying to remember who, who might've been using it because as I said, there weren't that many people, especially in New England, there weren't that many homeschoolers through recommendations from friends. I would say that would be the best answer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there, were, there weren't really, I mean, probably Seton and Colby maybe as mm-hmm. providers at that point as far as Catholic. Right. Or- be my guess yeah. yeah right yeah and this would so, be the offline version the what we are referring to now as the traditional homeschool right <laughs> yes <laughs> the internet was just not that um, visible so that would have been from like let me see from around 1998 and then our son peter he graduated in 2008 so it was about 10 or 11 years. So those are the years that we were doing it. Okay. So thinking back on your homeschooling days, what standout memories come to mind? Well, I think uh, partly it's, as I said, the uh, the good balance that you can have and the freedom and, the, and you get first thing in the morning, the memory I have is 
especially in the winter, if you get up early and do your math first, you can have hot chocolate. Oh, nice. <laughs> while you're doing your math. And you know, it it worked. Actually, it did work. Well, um, sure. Which was, was kind of fun to do. Um, I think also uh with our son Peter, who's he's not married. Uh he's he's a musician, he's a composer, he's a poet, and you know, he's a reader and he reads books all the time. Uh, you know, they're this thick and he and he um He's very creative. You know how your kids are all have these different temperaments have kind of investigated the four classic temperaments. And he's definitely double introvert and, you know, mulls over things. And and one of my favorite memories of him, um, I actually dug it out at the last minute was um, thanks to the, the writing that we did. Obviously I had, that was every, I think every homeschooler has their strengths and weaknesses and ours was, was um, writing. And I don't know if you ever heard of Stone Soup magazine. It's written, there are articles that, I don't know if it's still around, but the, the kids write. And and Peter, I went out in the woods with him and he he dictated basically a story called The Paper Boat. And um, he made up a story about, and he made the boat and he put it through the water. And like he said, I know the woods by heart. I'm going where there's a big rock. He was seven when he wrote it. And a waterfall flowing over the rocks. It's beautiful. I hear the trickling water. The water looks orange, yellow, and green because all the leaves have fallen in the water. They float. And then he goes on to describe it and then imaginary story that he makes up. And then it, it got published in there. And it just, um, I think with, with homeschooling like that, there's a certain freedom and it's very efficient. Okay, we find a nice fall day. We don't have to schedule a field trip. We just go out there and I just took notes of what he was saying and it was a lot of fun. And that was a, that was definitely a highlight uh, for us. Um, we also, as I said, we had, we raised guide dogs. The, that was a community project that the kids did um, socializing them. They were like eight months, uh, eight weeks old to about a year and a half. And that was a, they loved doing that. They, um, they were very good at, training them, not of course to, for the blind person, but just socializing them, bringing them to the bank, bringing them to the library. And I think that was a standout. And because we were homeschooling and doing, this was in high school, we were doing the guide dogs. We were able to have time to do a community service project like that. And they, I think they really did enjoy it. And they were doing it, even though they loved the dogs, it was hard to give up the dogs after about a year and a half but they were doing it, this kind of self-sacrificing love. So it was a real good lesson. Um, of the three dogs we had, they're all Labrador retrievers. One of them did become a guide dog. It's very difficult. They have to be super confident um, to qualify through the guiding eyes for the blind. So that was a real highlight. Um, and also I will say our daughter, as I said, Catherine was, is a gifted scholar. One day when she was, uh, she was a senior, and, you know, she was very diligent about the, the Colby curriculum. I took a walk at lunchtime and I came back and I saw a letter on the back door, the kitchen door. And it said, congratulations, you just got a full scholarship to the University of Dallas. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> it was very exciting. And I give Colby credit. I mean, the discipline of it. And, and I will add a different another story. So she did go to University of Dallas. Wonderful experience met her husband there who was from Louisiana. Now they live in Louisiana and have six kids. And her goal for going to college was, I want to find my vocation, which is 
pretty mature. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Daniel, when he, his first year, he went to St. Anselm's in New Hampshire. It's a um, Benedictine college. And it's, it was a little overwhelming, I think, being in homeschool and then go, going into all of the classes, a very different environment. But he, he's very outgoing and, and likable, and he, um, he loved it. They were very busy. But he wrote me a note, and he said, Mom, thank you for teaching me how to write because it was so important in college. Mm-hmm. And I give credit to Holby Academy. Thank you. It sounds like you brought a lot of your gifts and you're particularly skilled and gifted in that area as well. And you put the two together and that really served them well. It sounds like that's wonderful. It did. It seems to me the environment that you put your children in, it was an ideal for growing that sense of wonder and letting their, I mean, as you say, being able to go out into the woods and having your son listening for the the stream and seeing those colors and um we i grew up in rural wisconsin but but our uh, kids were largely raised in southern california but just a year and a half ago or so we moved to rural arkansas and we've just seen that sort of where it's like oh look a snake i'm going to have a pet snake now and seeing how the snake grows and sheds its skin and um or whatever it happens to be just that chance to or the opportunity to observe and to look at things in a different way i guess which i think i think that that seems like an important part of of your your family's education as well it was and i enjoyed it i i learned i learned a lot by the way the religion program of catholic apologetics and um all of your program i learned right along with them that was something i always sat down um on a regular basis and we went through it together because i'm a cradle catholic but i would say i didn't really have a good catechesis and it really helped me too i think it really grounded me also learning right along with them mm-hmm. yeah i will add one other thing about the homeschooling experience um we tried to have it varied but i did not spoon feed them i didn't sit down and especially if somebody has a large family you you know we have had three kids but I could not sit down and teach this one math, that one math, this one, you know, whatever subject. Um, I they had to be pretty independent. I would check in with them to see how they were doing. I'm will I'm not strong in math. I'm just saying some of these things so people don't think you have to be super mom, super intelligent in everything that you do, you know, every subject. Right. I I remember when we got the pre-calculus book for Catherine. I and uh, I just said here, kind of. She had to kind of figure it out herself. Let's put it that way. She was used to reading. She became an English major, uh, but now she's a nurse practitioner, which is pretty amazing because the first time we gave her the biology book, it was pretty challenging for her, the biology book from Colby. And she started to cry (laughs) when she started doing it Mm -hmm. because it was, she was used to excelling and all the other stuff. And it was challenging for her. This was so new, but she got through it. And uh, it was a good foundation for her because even though she was an English major at UD, um, it grounded her when she started to take training as a nurse, I really think. So, you know, that's, I think that's the beauty of Colby also. I'm not really strong in science or math, but 
relying on your expertise and the materials that you provide the high quality, I, I knew they were getting what they needed. Mm-hmm. So for the Colby high schoolers who are listening or their parents who are working through the, the high school curriculum in particular, and hear you talk about taking care of your animals on your land and, and the, the guide dog, that's amazing. That, that whole endeavor that you all undertook. Um, do you, how did you all make it work accomplishing the Colby schoolwork, especially the high school course load and have ample time for the other things that you all were involved in? Well, I have to get up early. You know, yeah. uh, I use the incentive okay. of hot chocolate. If you start your math. So starting yeah. early, getting as much done before lunchtime as you can, the academics, okay. uh, they did have to take, go out and take care of the goats too. But um, so that was a really big, important part of it. And they could sense, you know, that once lunchtime rolled around and then there was more freedom, then they would do their music in the afternoon or would go. We did go. Another thing, we went to the library on a regular basis and always were reading aloud to them. And um, they always had books. So I would say my recommendation is, um, you know, they really do have to get up, you know, early, I'm saying seven o'clock in the morning and, um, getting things started getting that routine set. Okay. This is the expectation. It's a reasonable expectation and the incentive. If you get your academics done first, you know, you've got more freedom. It's very efficient. Yeah, I really, I mean, I've, I was a public school product myself, but my, I enjoy that with my children that, you know, for me, it was okay. I get the lesson done in school or whatever, if I was doing that, then it, then that's where I would grab a book and start reading. But then that was constantly interrupted and the days, you know, eight hours long or whatever. And it's just nice to know that, oh, wait, if you just get stuff done efficiently, then it's all free. It's not that you have to still sit there kind of the, the, the position I was in. So that's, yeah, it's, it's one of those lovely things about homeschooling, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a built-in incentive right there, and it's efficient. Ends up serving them well as adults as well when they have to direct their own schedule, yeah. Um, Well, not too long ago on episode 131, we visited with Danielle Bean, and one of the things she talked about valuing homeschool for was the space for relationships among her children and with herself and her husband to develop. Have, Have you noticed a correlation between your children being homeschooled and the relationships that they now have? I, yes, I do. Um, I think especially between um, Daniel, who's five years older than Peter, our youngest, they became very close um, and they did road bikes together and tramped out in the field, in the woods. And they did all of that um, and ice skating. We lived near ponds and they could go ice skating together and uh, they still hug each other. You know, they love each other. And Dan's a very good big brother. Like if things aren't going well for him he's the one that his younger brother will turn to even though peter's 33 now and you know be honest with you when things aren't going well they're now they're young adults peter's 33 i can't there are certain things i can't really talk about with peter but he can talk about it with his brother Mm -hmm. and i'm you know and it's sort of it is a relief um and then you know it's funny we don't you know our daughter lives in louisiana we only Really, we don't get to see all three of our kids together very often, but when they get together, they get out their violin, they get out the mandolins, and they play together like they practice every week. 
It's just amazing. Oh, wonderful. So I think um, for in our case, uh, they really do. Uh, I think I think it does nurture a special closeness because they can have more time together and doing things that they enjoy together. Um, and you know, I think even Katie said she was seven years older than Peter when he was born. It it really fed into her nurturing um, personality, which having six children, you know, it was a very natural thing for her. So I I agree with Danielle that. There, it definitely does um, build positive relationships that are lifelong with siblings. I'm very glad to hear that. I'm hopeful. <laughs> when you were nearing the end of your active homeschooling days, what did the impending transition look like for you? Had, had you been writing that all along? Had that always been an interest of yours? Um, and, and kind of how did that, what was that like for you as you were nearing the end of, of the Colby days? Um, well, I had been writing all along, keeping journals. You know what they say, writers don't want to write, they need to write. Just yeah. keeping something that nobody would ever read or anything of that nature. It took a few years. We we uh, kind of went away from Maine for three years as uh, we worked as house parents down in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and then in Springfield, Massachusetts. And then I came back. Um, I don't really feel like I had too much of an empty nest syndrome, you might say, uh, we were ready to move on, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. Peter went to the University of Southern Maine and, you know, we went off to Hershey and uh, there is life after homeschooling. Right. <laughs> Sometimes you think you just kind of immersed in the moment, which is, which is good, but I never visualized really what, what happened with my, my writing. Cause I never really had that much time to devote to it or even know what would be good for me to write. And I, um, one summer day, I think it was in 2015, I, I had been working in a school as adult support for special needs children. We had the summers off. And uh, so a neighbor of ours brought over Eucharistic Miracles the, uh, of the World, you know, the book that the uh, exhibition is based on. And I was looking at it and I thought, I wonder if you could write children's stories about the Eucharist, Eucharistic miracles. And um, at first I was like, no, because you kind of think of the same type of Eucharistic miracle of where the host, the consecrated host becomes flesh. And I didn't really know how you could write a story about that. Well, turns out there are all kinds of Eucharistic miracles. So I actually basically wrote these 10 stories in one summer. They're all short stories, uh, you know, about 1,000, 2,000 words. And um, then in 2018, I self-published, got an um, artist to do a little, um, some illustrations and John Foley, who's a very fine artist, he did the cover and put it up on, um, on Amazon. No advertising, uh, unknown writer, self-published. In April of 2019, it was the number one book in Roman Catholic books. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> what? You know, right up there with Scott Hahn and Henri Nouwen, you know, like this is all about, you know, God, I think like our blessed mother was my PR person or something, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> and it just kind of, it, you know what, you know what it was, Bonnie, it was that I wrote books that I wished I had for my kids. Mm -hmm. And so, and I know, I know these, I know the people who are reading them. A lot of them are probably homeschoolers. And I really wanted to bring stories about, from the treasury of the Catholic faith and bring it down. So it's not preachy. 
that they're exciting stories with a real punch to them and um, that are engaging. You know, I do um, have a real special spot for reading aloud to children because they're short that people read them aloud. They can read them aloud before the kids go to bed or at, you know, religious education classes. And I didn't really know that at the time. So that's kind of where it all launched. I Don't ask me how it happened. I, I think it had to be that God had wanted to bring these books to kids, you know, and I was, you know, working with them on it. So that was it. And now you have several published. Do you have that Eucharistic Miracles book? Or you have one called Rescued. And Lucia, in addition to your books, you also write for Magnificat and CatholicMom.com. I was enjoying several of your posts on Catholic Mom the other day, getting ready for this recording. That's, yeah. yeah. It It's just kind of been organic and grassroots. And I don't know what you want to say. It just kind of, and I don't, it's a dream job for me, really. I don't even consider it a job, really. But um, I get up early in the morning, kind of modeled after the homeschooling model. Get up early and do your work, right? Have a cup of tea. I read the Magnificat. Um, but I read, I just work about an hour a day on the stories. And um, and then I'm pretty much done. And uh, it works. You know, it's a good thing. And it's very rewarding. I, I love the stories of... Some of the ones in Rescued, especially the the one that came out this year about Don Fendler. I don't know if you know that story. See, I'm evangelizing non-Maine, state of Maine residents about Don Fendler. (laughs) He was a Catholic, a young boy who's Catholic who was 12, and he was lost on Mount Katahdin for nine days. Hmm. It's a remarkable story. And the kids in Maine know this story because he, he survived, of course, and he would visit the schools for years and years and years and t- tell his story. And it is about, he believed his guardian angel. It's, it's, it's a very excruciating story to read because how, you know, how is he ever going to get out of this? Um, but he literally felt his guardian angel lift him up when he had given up. And, and shortly thereafter he was rescued. And it's a, it's a very uh, amazing story. Um, and he didn't even want to talk about the presence of his guardian angel that was with him on the mountain urging him on and the, the cover of it is the bear the black bear and in fact i john uh, folly did it and i thought wow this is kind of scary you know and um but uh, i asked a seven-year-old girls do you think do you think this cover is too scary she said oh no that's not too scary you know <laughs> um but that actually happened where he startled a black bear and he and he the black bear reared up right over him and was blood curdling cry but fortunately ran the other way uh, so these are the kind of stories i love stories that really are exciting and but also without preaching of course teach how this boy had to rely on his guardian angel had to rely he prayed every day had to rely god was going to get me out of this and honestly it's kind of funny. I get sort of choked up even reading at the end. And uh, I was just reading um, this really fun biography about E.B. White. And uh, when he was um, he was older, he did get dementia, but his son would read him Charlotte's Web and he would actually cry, even though he had written the book, he would cry about Charlotte's death. It's really was, was beautiful. But so it, it all kind of took off on its own. Thanks be to God. So I'm just glad that people are building. I'm trying to build the faith of of uh, families and 
support them and invest in the best way that I can through this gift that, you know, God has enlightened me to. <laughs> it seems like um, we've touched a few times on all these miraculous things, and it sounds as if at least being drawn to telling about these miraculous things seems like something that you've, has, was there a, a time, has it always been there or was there, a, was it just kind of inspiration when you saw that Eucharistic Miracles book and just decided this is what I need, the story I need to tell or what's the origin of that? I, I think you're right, Stephen, that I am sort of drawn to the supernatural um, aspect of things. I've written actually a few things that have happened to me in a nutshell. Actually, it will be out in the Magnificat next year, how I feel my guardian angel. I, I have that in the beginning of Rescued rescued me. I was outside and was was caught in an F3 tornado and was starting to go airborne. And I felt, I really felt like I almost was lassoed around the ankles, ankles and was pulled down and survived, obviously. Um, it was a very close call. People who saw it happen just thought I was a goner, you know. So I think I, yes, Stephen, I think I am drawn to supernatural. And I think kids are too. They like I think they like stories like that. And, you know, there's so many, especially in Miraculous, I really wanted to bring to children, Catholic young people, um, some of the major stories that are in there, like the miracle of the sun, mm -hmm. like the, the Tilma. We just celebrated the Our Lady of Guadalupe yesterday. They're incredible stories, and they're just, they're true. And I love the children of Fatima. Um, their stories are remarkable. And the fact that you can look at a photograph of them, you know, it's just just remarkable. So yes, I think Stephen, I am drawn to that. Although some of the the uh, aspects in especially rescued, they're more of uh, a lot about human courage of uh, doing risking people risking their lives to save other people, uh, like Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty, who rescued prisoners of war from the Nazis. It was made into uh, Scarlet in the Black, which is a great movie um, with uh, Gregory Peck. So. Um, yeah, I think they make for good stories, things of the super supernatural. I think it's really needed today. I mean, uh, from my own experience, you know, I, I know that like the House of Loretto exists and things now. It didn't until a couple of years ago. And all of these miracles are real. But still, I find myself, like the first time I, I heard of the House of Loretto traveling from the Holy Land Road, I was like, no, that this does, this stuff doesn't really happen. This is just you know <laughs> yeah. fairy tales. And then I'm like, what am I talking about? Obviously, this is. But I think we in today's world we lose, especially for our, our children. They aren't getting exposed to. No, these these are things that that really do happen. Your guardian angel isn't just this little story we tell you to make you feel better about going to bed at night. This is an angel who is watching out for you develop your relationship your friendship with with this angel and then and then giving them examples of of heroic virtue because i was just thinking about this as getting ready for the podcast i mean what heroes are are out there today for for people i mean they keep tearing down all the, it seems to me all of the heroic figures and not well they had a fault so they can't be you know they can't be a hero anymore so getting those examples of people who act heroically i just think is so important for our kids so i can i could see that the holy spirit working drawing you in this way because it's a need i, I really think it's a huge need for for young people today 
Yeah, and it helps us build our faith and our hope. Like I, I um, am fascinated by the Shroud of Turin too. I mean, that's where science and faith come together, right? That has been really studied and you have to really do a lot of mental gymnastics to think that it's not really what it is, you know? Um, okay, a shroud, a cloth that um, they first took a photograph of it. Um, it was the uh, first photograph taken of the shroud in the 1800s, just when photography was getting underway. It was one of the first examples of uh, of indoor photography, Secundo Pia did it and he didn't know what he didn't know what he was going to get when he took the picture of the shroud he was given permission of course rushes back to his lab and it's developed and there's a face of jesus the tortured face of jesus in his tank i mean can you imagine that moment i've tried how to would a, no. how would an artist you know however old the, the shroud is hundreds of years old extra you know create an it's just beyond anything you can possibly imagine, really, you know. <laughs> yes. And it's so important, I mean, to, if you have, if you know that God is working and there's, there's these examples, as you're saying, the Shroud of Turin is, is just one of those things, again, that you can't, you have to make the choice not to believe it. I mean, you can't go down a scientific route and try to disprove it. It's just impossible. But, um, to know that that God works in these just incredible ways, what confidence does that instill? To, it's like help me to get through this tough day, God. Well, if you can do that, you can certainly take care of the problems that I'm facing in a in the daily sort of sort of realms. But again, we forget we forget that at times. We stop. Well, at least for me, don't think about praying. Don't think about asking God for His help or trusting that He's gonna He's got this all taken care of. I don't need to worry about it. Um, so it's focusing on the miraculous, I think is a good way to remind us, remind us of his providence and goodness. I, I like the timing, the providential timing of how these stories come out to further the conversation between faith and science and faith and reason. That's, I think they play such significant roles in that. I'd, and you know, uh, there's a, a, a wonderful book I read recently, um, Is Atheism Dead? Um, by Eric Metaxas. And it's a fascinating book. It's very readable. He actually wrote for VeggieTales, so he's he's got a good touch. <laughs> and um, But he really looks at the scientific, the hardest argument, I guess, that Christopher Hitchens uh, had to deal with, what is the hardest thing to you refute from somebody who believes in God? And it's the fine tuning of the universe. I mean, I'm looking out here at an apple tree, you know, our leaves are just, and it's it's quite a book because it's just irrefutable that there had to be a designer behind this, you know, that there had to be a creator. And of course, also the Big Bang Theory, 13.8 billion years ago, uh, there was a beginning. Atheists tend to need for evolution to really work. Their brand of evolution has to go back probably trillions of years. But, you know, when there's a cutoff 13.8 billion years ago, something big happened. Once again, first cause, what caused the Big Bang? Um, I mean, how would an atheist answer that? Right. 
So in addition to your writing, are you still working with guide dogs or what, uh, what other interests and involvements and pursuits keep you busy? Uh, well, no, we, the guide dog project, it was very rewarding, but it was for the kids. The okay. kids laugh. No more goats, no more, <laughs> no more chickens. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I do enjoy dogs and things, but, um, but we did, it, it freed us up. Uh, we're secular Franciscans, um, in the, um, third order. And so we did become, we professed as secular Franciscans and we actually were able to go to Italy to, uh, on a pilgrimage to Assisi, uh, in 2019, just before everything started happening. And, uh, it was a fabulous trip and we, I'm not a traveler. And I, um, we did pretty, we did very well with a small group of secular Franciscans and two priests, two Franciscan priests, friars, and um, a brother. And that was wonderful. We actually uh, talk about the supernatural. We went to the, there's a, on Laverna where, um, this, where St. Francis received the stigmata. And it's a little tiny chapel. Laverna is a very isolated place up on the hills, very rugged it's to this day, there's not much, you know, civilization there. And we actually saw the actual spot. It's not very big. It's maybe by, you know, two feet by two feet. They have a marker there where that's where St. Francis received his stigmata. And we actually were um, overjoyed to be able to have mass in that little chapel. It was pretty amazing. So that's been a very big part of um, our work in sec as secular Franciscans. Um, we do pray every um, Thursday down at a, an abortion clinic, a prayer, you know, peaceful prayer through the 40 days for life too. Um, let's see. And I don't know. I think my husband and I really enjoy kind of not having the responsibility, you know, of um, taking care of the kids. Uh, and we, we are enjoying our time together, be able to just go out for walks together. Um, you know, we, go to mass daily more often than we had been in the past. We help out a nutrition center. We support an adult uh, with intellectual disabilities also, which has been very rewarding for us. And, uh, you know, I think it's wonderful. Some people would think he can't talk. He's very limited. Um, he pretty much can't talk or communicate. But, you know, he's learned and we've learned that if you give him jobs, like working at the nutrition center with us, he can pack, sort bread he can sort cookies he can carry boxes and you know the the value of work it you can see he gets very it's a thing he looks forward to as best he can communicate that to us so that's been a a wonderful thing and let's see so i think you know the free time has been good i do a lot more reading try to pick it up playing the piano i'm not very good at it but <laughs> as long as nobody listens to me playing i'm okay you know um, so yeah, those are kind of the things that we like to do. It's, 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 God has blessed us. We have good health and it's been a good, beautiful kind of retirement and seeing the grandkids, of course, it's really a lot of fun. They, they crack me up, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yes. and, um, they do, I have to say they do a wonderful job with them, um, raising them in the Catholic faith and having books everywhere, just books. Although I did get a little tired of reading Angelina Ballerina to my six-year-old. <laughs> you mean there's another Angelina Ballerina book? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, well, when you say retirement, but as you're you know updating your your website and you know producing books, and it seems 
I mean, I guess you can call that retirement. It it seems like you're still still in the thick of activities and doing doing things. So, um. well, thank you, Stephen. Yeah, it is. I I would not want to um, just sit back and not do anything. Yeah, right. <laughs> it wouldn't be too good. But, um, but I and I just it's just been really rewarding. And I, I as I said, you know, when we were in the thick of things, homeschooling with, with the Colby curriculum, I never pictured it. God, you know, God plans things, thinks bigger than we do. He figures it out. I could never have figured it out. Nope. Yeah, I, I was, you were telling your story, I was, I was thinking about that too, because, you know, as you go along, you think, I should have everything together. I should know my vocation, just kind of as your daughter was going off to college thinking, what's my vocation? And it seems like the more as I get older, that vocation probably is all laid out to, it's clearly laid out to God, but it's changes, right? So it's doing what's in front of you. And it's okay if you don't have everything figured out. It's like, well, what, I haven't started the Jesuits yet. I haven't done these huge things that I, you know, I'd like to do for God, but he's got plans. It's just doing what he needs you to do now, I guess. And, and then waiting. And then there, there are those books come that you throw out on Amazon that become one of the top sellers for the Catholic books and things. So, yeah, we can plan those out yourself. You you can't, right? Yeah, and it, and I think as I said, being in the thick of homeschooling, you don't think beyond homeschooling. Honestly, I mean, I I mean, you do help them plan for college, and you would take them on tours to of the different colleges, but um, you just have to be faithful to the tasks and being there for them every day in little ways and being consistent and uh, being steady. And that's the way I did homeschooling. And that's the way I'm doing writing. I don't do, you know, some people write six hours a day. I could never do that. You know, this is write a novel month in November, write 50,000 words. And, and to me, that'd be torture. I could never do that, you know, <laughs> So I just think for, you know, the listeners, um, I encourage them, you're doing the right thing. And another thing about homeschoolers is that they, homeschoolers never think they're doing enough, right. but that's the beauty of the Colbake curriculum. You know, if you stick with it do the best you can, I certainly was not perfect in what I did. And I um, had to scramble every end of the semester to, to get my paperwork together. <laughs> you know, it's like, you think you want to learn by now? But uh, just encourage, you know, I'm just a regular, I was a regular homeschooling mom like you, and um, I don't have spectacular skills in it. And uh, I can remember having, walking around with the, uh, well, senior, the math book, the Saxon math, and clutching it with the answer key, trying to help <laughs> Peter with it, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was tough. But, you know, you just keep <laughs> keep doing it. And, you know, and now I think that there's more, from what I understand, uh, Colby has more access to support, you know, if you, if you really are struggling and that, right. that I'm sure, you know, they would have helped me if I called, but I think that's probably more of your program now. Yeah. You don't feel so alone. Right. Well, you've mentioned already, let's talk some more about the, the interest that you have in and the importance you place on reading aloud to children. I've what do you see as important or helpful in approaching and accomplishing that? Well, it's easy. It's fun. I was, this book I have here, uh, The Enchanted Hour by Megan Cox Gurdon. 
Um, I actually, there'll be links. I think that you'll talk about Bonnie mm -hmm. yep. and this, I think this is a comfort to somebody who's homeschooling. If I ask you, what is the best thing that you can do educationally for your child? You might think it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to be really hard, but you know what it is? Well, as Megan's book says, the miraculous power reading aloud loud in the age of distraction, that there is a lot of brain re research going on is a, a medical center in Cincinnati where they actually will kind of, I don't know how they do it, put kids in an MRI, but they make it fun. You're going in a rocket ship, you know, and the kids listen to stories. They have, they see pictures of stories and they see, especially really little kids. It's never too early to start reading to your kids. I mean, babies that because their brains are just developing. So exponentially, I think they're 85% growth by the age five. It, it builds their vocabulary, builds their uh, imaginations. Of course, there's also when you're snuggling next to them, there's that feeling of security. Uh, this Megan talks a lot about Goodnight Moon. Now, who has not read Goodnight Moon to your kids and have all those pictures memorized, you know? Mm -hmm. So Megan calls it a magic elixir. Now, uh, Megan is the um, children's book reviewer for the Wall Street Journal, she raised five kids and she, she weaves her story of raising five kids and the importance that even after they know how to read, even when they're teenagers, she reads to them. And um, it's the thing that's so beautiful about it is it's just fun and it's so natural. Kids and books go together. So even if, well, I'll tell you, my, my son and Dan and his wonderful wife, Kelly, with the five kids, they are getting ready to move. And she's homeschooling one of their kids, a six-year-old. But she's trying to pack and she's trying to, you know, and she's she's very serious. She's about anything that she does. She works very hard, but she's having a lot of trouble. They're supposed to move January 6th of uh, trying to keep it going. And I said to Dan, Dan, as I said to this in this podcast, the best thing she can do is just take a deep breath, sit down and read to the kids. They have beautiful books all over the house, just wonderful books. And it's good for her. It's good for the kids. And even if that's the only thing you do all day, feel good about it. And don't underestimate the power of reading aloud, please. I'm glad you spoke to that too, about continuing to read after they can read to themselves, continuing to read aloud to them. That's been something I've tried to continue with less frequency. I used to read aloud a lot and we used to drive to parochial school and listen to a lot of audiobooks that way yeah. past that time. And we've gotten through some, some wonderful books that we wouldn't have read when they were younger, right? That it's good um, reconnection time too, as, as the kids have gotten older. And Sarah McKenzie has, she's, I think she might be Catholic. I'm not sure, but mm -hmm. she's very popular. I think she has a podcast and um, the read aloud family is really, really good because she just gives the nuts and bolts, a lot of practical tips. You don't have to have the kids sitting perfectly straight, listening to every word that you read. They can be drawing or they can be playing with their Legos or, you know, just kind of integrate it as best that you can. And, um, and I think, I think I wish these books were out. We were doing a lot of what they're talking about. We didn't realize that it was the right thing to do at the time. Right. So I think there's a lot to be encouraged about and uh, to appreciate. And of course, limiting screen time is, uh, is valuable because, uh, you know, it, it, it needs to have limits put on it. Um, but that's a whole other issue, a whole other topic. But I just like to um, encourage and appreciate the, the need and the beauty of reading aloud 
to to your children, you know, even as a family. My youngest is eight now. And I think in our family, I think the problem is that we have is oftentimes people just scatter everywhere after after dinner. I'm not sure if it's related to not wanting to help clean up dishes or just because there's other interesting <laughs> things to do. But so we're, we've been able to take advantage right now of some cooler weather. So we've got we've got one fireplace in our in our home and we've been lighting the fires right at after at dinner time here. So everybody like just last night, everybody was down around the fire, you know, chatting, and I, my wife pulled out the books. It, it worked that way. We, but, but I have to admit that oftentimes we're just not very good about kind of bringing everybody together. We're just like, oh, they're off doing their things. I don't want to bother them. But, uh, but yeah, it's nice. It's nice when it happens. So I should be deliberate about it. I know, but the challenge. It can easily be the first thing to go though when things get busy. So I, I have enjoyed audiobooks and found them very useful with the kids, especially driving places. What do you think about um, the place of audiobooks in accomplishing some of this uh, reading aloud? I think um, audiobooks are a good thing for, um, to listen to, like, you know, when you're traveling. You know, we have done it. It's kind of a um, second choice, I'd say, towards the immediacy of a, of a parent. Um, by the way, Jim Trelease, who's a pioneer for the read aloud movement, he was he strongly advocated um, fathers reading to children and having children see you reading a book. Yeah. <laughs> Simple things, you know, like, oh, look, dad's reading. You know, dad's a very important part of this. It really is. But I think audiobooks are good. Uh, we actually, I think it was last winter, we, we listened to the um, Fellowship of the Ring this actor who read them was phenomenal. I think he's English and I can't think of his name, but I mean, how did he switch from doing all those voices? And it was amazing. So we, we would listen to it, my husband and I, while we were eating and the, you know, sometimes these long, dark winters, main winters are a good thing. Kind of can wrap the day up early. And, uh, you know, we would listen to it while we were eating our meal. Um, so I think, I think audiobooks are, are a good thing. Absolutely definitely found them to be, have, to have a place among the other things that we're doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have mentioned a few books and resources already. Are there any others you want to mention? We, we will put some links in our show notes that you've provided for us. Yeah. The other one, uh, Honey for a Child's Heart by Gladys Hunt. Um, this is, this is not like the previous one, the Enchanted Hour is excellent, but it's more secular. She she doesn't really get into um, things that would build up, you know, characters and that would be pleasing in the eyes of God, but um, <clears throat> Honey for a Child's Heart, and this is 2021, so it's pretty updated, the imaginative use of books in family life. And the thing that's, that's really good about her is I would recommend, if you say you go to the library and you don't, I don't know what books to get, where do I begin? Do I really want to read Square Pants, Bob Square Pants? <laughs> I forget how it is. Or Diary of a Wimpy Kid, you know. Um, there must be something a little uh, elevated to that. But um, but they have, this is a very good, best love books for children, classic children's novels. And she'll break it down ages 9 to 12. Of course, um, Charlotte's Web is really up there. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Roar, the Narnia series is way up there. Caddy Woodlong. So I'm, I like the uh, Honey for a Child's Heart because it has a, 
a lot of a list of books, good tools for you and descriptions of them and the age that it's appropriate for. So I think, so those are good. Um, Megan's book is good, but she doesn't really describe the books and she doesn't really have them divided into ages. So even if like we live in a um, kind of a rural area, so if I see books that I want to um, to read, well, I, we read um, for every other week to our grandchildren, three, uh, three of the grandchildren in Louisiana, we do a Zoom. And it's been good. They've been looking forward to it. So I will use some of these books as resources and then they can get it through interlibrary loan if they don't have it. So you can get almost any book. So I, Honey for a Child's Heart probably would be my first recommendation if you really want something. I think Sarah McKenzie's The Read Aloud Family is excellent. She's a home. It's kind of geared for homeschoolers, actually. And she really tells you, you know, like Stephen was saying, it's just too busy. I can't, you know, what, how do you get around that? You know, maybe when they're sorting the socks, you know, we could read. <laughs> kind of, she's got a good sense of humor. Yeah. And um, so those are three, three right solid ones right there. And Jim Trelease is, is good also. I don't think he's writing anymore, but um, so there's a lot. It's really, um, there's a lot out there on it and the importance of it. That's a that's you just said something that I was mentioning. Everybody fleeing after dishes or or during dishes. That would be a great time to read, right? Well, this is one person's job is to read while the rest of them are washing and things. That that would work out. I'll have to give that a try. I think. Yeah, Stephen, you can sit there at the table, read. You right. pick the book and you read while they're doing their chores. That's excellent. Yeah, that's I I like this idea. I'm going to have to try to implement this. <laughs> <laughs> How come dad gets to sit and read while we have to do the dishes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll let them read then if they if they really complain too much. But uh, sure. yeah, I'll have to give that a try. Lots of good come from that. We will have links to these suggestions in our show notes to check out, to pardon the pun, check out the books that, <laughs> that you're suggesting, Catherine. Uh, Colby also publishes a book list and we will put that in our show notes as well. I have found that the books that we don't get to in our Colby literature studies, so we pick out a few from, you know, elementary and junior high literature, then we there are all these other books that we don't get to. So those are also ones I have sometimes used for read alouds. And then the other books by those authors. So the one that comes to mind first is uh, Louisa May Alcott, several books that she has written, not the Little Women series several other ones, Rose and Bloom and, and Eight Cousins. Those were ones we enjoyed very much and and um, Under the Lilacs and things like that. So it's been a good jumping off point to find other stuff that we can enjoy together. So lots of good stuff in our show notes today. As we're wrapping up here, do you have any final thoughts or takeaways for our listeners? Well, I would say uh, enjoy what you're doing. I mean, I, I did enjoy it and it does actually come to an end eventually, you know, but um, persevere and um, find security in having the, the wonderful support of Colby Academy, um, which has uh, just expanded since we were doing it. So you're not alone out there and you're doing a good thing. It's, it's really worth the effort. And so just, just carry on. Okay. That's very encouraging. We'll be on the lookout for more good stuff to come from you. You have one out this year. What's next for you? Well, I'm actually working on, let me see, where's my list here? Okay, I'm working on Miraculous 2. 
So I've already written, and it's going to be usually about 10 stories. That'll come out next year, hopefully. I've already written one on Jacinta. Uh, she was a remarkable little girl. The beauty thing about writing about the children of Fatima is that they're children, and children can relate to them. And wow. Um, and I just finished, um, I did the story on um, St. Bernadette. Um, I haven't written, really written much about her. And uh, it's remarkable how really, really poor that family was. They lived in an abandoned jail. I mean, yeah, it was incredible. I'm also writing on um, Father Sebastian Rall, who's really not very well known. He was a Jesuit. He, he, was, on, he was on the list of uh, North American martyrs. These are all going to be in this short story version. And um, he, uh, he lived for 30 years with the Abenakis in Maine. Um, and he was much hated by the British. And they wanted his scalp. And uh, he, the, the miraculous aspect that I am writing about is that one time the British ambushed the village and he knew he was warned they were coming and he had a bad leg. He was, lived to be 70 and this was later in his life. And he ran to the tabernacle. He got the consumed the host, got the sacred vessels and limped in the deep snow and hid behind a tree, the only tree he could get to in time. And it was a skinny little birch tree that didn't hide him at all. And the British didn't see him. And he doesn't, it was it was a little miracle of how, how did he escape? So those are three of the stories I'm working on now. And uh, so, so next year, Miraculous too. Wonderful. Yeah. Catherine, what a pleasure it's been to meet you and, and visit with you and prepare this episode with you. Thank you so much for coming to visit with us. Well, thank you. It's been fun thinking about homeschooling. It's been a while, but it really did bring back memory. So thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Subscribe to the ColbyCast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or a review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam. <laughs>